Hello. Hello. We are uh, diving into the wreckage. We're six point something. I'm going to provisionally say seven, but I think there's two six point fives. Oh. Um, so <laughs> we're so uh, prolific, we can't keep track at this point in time. Or, or that's another way of saying the debt crisis has been so long that it's yeah. getting into redundancy. So we're going to have to deal with a couple of different things today. We're going to have to deal with some contentions between Marxists and MMTers. One of the interesting things about MMTers and a lot of neo-Keynesians is they will argue that sovereign debt is the same thing as sovereign currency uh, creation because Mm. of the nature of the Fed. And I'm just going to go ahead and say there's some truth to that Um, if you're dealing with a currency that has strong forex value. So the dollar, like there, there actually is a truth to the amount of the dollar existing is actually directly tied to government bonds created to create money, et cetera. Hmm. That's true enough. Um, what matters, however, is who that money's owed to and how it's owed and if it flows out and a bunch of other, uh, other things. Um, this this leads to basically um, the great debate uh, over whether or not um, basically the declining rates of profits make sense. Mm. Now, government debt being tied into this doesn't immediately seem to affect that right it's like okay what does that have to do with with profit rates Mm. if currency is all that matters then profit rates should respond to positively to the to the creation of more currency and the creation of more federal debt Mm. um this is in the MMT world. Like they yeah, are. This, yeah. this is one of their fundamental arguments. Yeah. Um, while I think part of that may be true, what that misses fundamentally is why is it that deve- that investment in productive assets declines over time? Hmm. Why is that true? And there are there's the MMT answer to that. There's the Keynesian answer to that, which is not quite the same as MMT, but it's basically the same. Um, and then there's like the capitalist power answer to that, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, uh, and they don't have one. They have a good way of explaining like why the U.S. dollar does what it does on the international market, how it ended up being uh, part of international forex. At least the capital capitalism is power people do. Um, but the, for the people who aren't familiar with, uh, the MMT debates and maybe what MMT is in general, there are, are there people out there who are, are Marxist MMTers? Who yeah, there's orthodox? two. There's, there's and two. They, and they believe in the tendency of the rate of profit to decline. And they're also, no, MMT. they don't, they don't believe it. So, so these two Mar- things are like, in they're like mutually right. exclusive within there. Okay. Well, so one question is, do they believe in labor theory of value? Mm. And some of them will say, depends on what you mean. And to the, and to their defense, Marxists don't agree on what labor theory of value is. Sure, yeah. Like, do we think it's it's an aggregate marker, i.e. I, me, uh, the econophysicist, et cetera? Like, yes, we can talk about it. Like, we can talk about value in the total system. And the difference between profits and value, uh, I mean, between uh, the cost of labor as variable capital, the cost of inputs as fixed capital, and um, and actual valuarization in the system as a whole. But we can't talk about it in any, in any individual price. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so pricing is actually more complicated than that. Um, and I would say... Uh, that's my position. There are some people who think you have to actually do a transformation. This is where the transformation problem comes from between money form value and actual physical commodity value. And how do you figure that out? That's one of the forms of the transformation problem. And these are like Shafrians and other people. Some of them do believe in declining rate of profits to fall. Some of them don't because of, uh, 
Paul Sweezy and Baron. Um, so, so there's that school. That school's still a lot of Marxist. I mean, mm. David Harvey's in that camp too. Mm. Um, then there is MMT's answer to that that says currency is a closed system of money money that is issued either by law or the state. That sounds like it's the same thing. It's not. Mm. Um, and that's a debate within MMT that public debt is good because shrinking the public debt actually shrinks the money supply. I think that's actually true mm. that a sovereign currency. And by that, they mean a bunch of different things. They don't just mean like uh, a currency by a government. They mean a currency by a government that can fully float itself on the market and does not have to pin itself to any other currency. Now, priorly in the, in the, in the aughts, they used to say that in the aught teens, they used to say that, well, people pin themselves on currency for ideological reasons. And if they just didn't do that, uh, they would be able to um, operate. One of the mm. problems that I have about MMT, and we'll get into this when we talk about their, their interpretation of what's going on right now, um, is that they only look at bank balances, most of them. Some of them, however, mm. did realize that, well, okay, why does Venezuela peg its money to the dollar? Because it has to. Mm. That's not an ideological claim. It's got to sell stuff on the market. It can make deals locally, like are with China or whatever to take stuff in another currency. Um, but there's no incentive for it not to primarily deal in dollars because people further away are going to trade in that because that's kind of the OPEC norm. Mm. But even if it wasn't the OPEC norm, they would have to deal in currencies that are broadly accepted because of the purchasing power of the economy within that country. And there's only like three that you're going to want to do. China doesn't have currency sovereignty. Ironically, this is a, a funny thing about the term, and neither does the EU for different reasons. China mm. doesn't have it according to MMT because it doesn't want to float its currency. If it floated its currency, it would have to act a lot more like the US and how it and how it deals with investment. Mm. And would have to like uh relinquish a lot of their ability to manage their internal markets through currency manipulation, which is remember basically. When the U.S. and China were on good terms up until the pivot to Asia, that was like the only complaint Americans had about China was that yeah. they were currency manipulators. Which, I mean, uh, floating the currency would be a threat to not just um, the party's influence over uh, capital, but also the the social development model, mm -hmm. right? Because Absolutely. Be able, yeah. Um, which is why they don't do it, which is why all these people who think there's like a BRICS on the yuan that's going to emerge they don't yeah. understand china's own policy right and and you see a lot of comments uh talking about the renminbi uh becoming like this is all that china has to do in order to get the global reserve currency and it's like that assumes that they would want that and it's yeah. clear that they don't because the steps haven't been taken and again right. it threatens their uh domestic politics with certain parties they will trade in renminbi so with russia with Sa with saudi arabia for oil um, but with most parties, even when they're not trading in dollars, they pick a proxy currency. A, a big one that they often pick is like Swiss francs. Mm. Also, BRICS has been hoarding gold. Mm. Um, the BRIC countries have been hoarding gold. The other problem with BRICS is political. India and China don't actually get along. And and militarily, India cooperates with Australia and, and U.S. command. Um, and actually, Vietnam <laughs> um, mm. to curtail Chinese interest in sea lane changes, meaning that the U.S. domination of, of, of deep water trade is maintained, and China doesn't really contest that, actually. Mm. Um, so, and as we've seen this year, China's not even really pushing back on the IMF and the World Bank. It's cooperating with them. It fucking had, you know, the meet, the World Bank meeting in their country. I know that there's been Norton or somebody's probably going to claim that this is really some kind of three-dimensional or 85-dimensional chess, but yeah. it doesn't, it seems like the Belt and Road Initiative hitting sovereign debt problems it, uh, when China's having its own internal development problems has really blocked it. And also the collapse of the Belt and Road Initiative seems to have finally led China to start doing other kinds of diplomatic forays against the United States, mm -hmm. um, such as reaching out to Saudi Arabia um brokering peace in the middle east yeah you know um attempting to be um you know what passes for a neutral actor in uh in russia and ukraine yeah slightly favoring russia but 
not as much as the U.S. paints it as doing, and I think we should acknowledge that, right? Uh, like, yeah, the I mean, China um, and its political economy and its uh, diplomacy ends up confusing the hell out of people. I saw a commenter a couple of days ago who was shocked that the World Economic Forum had a meeting in China, because of course. In certain minds, even on the left, you know, the World Economic Forum as boogeyman and China as heroic um, uh, counter hegemon, the never the twain shall meet between those things. But this is very much a, a real politique, as you said. Absolutely. Um, you know, my, my when people push to me, like, uh, again, I'll pick on Ben Norton and the geopo- and geopolitical economic people which uh, notice that they changed the title from political economy to geopolitical economy mm. and while some of them are marxist others like hudson are not mm. um hudson has this whole thing where he thinks that like finance capital is parasitic on um on industrial capital and industrial and that socialism and industrial capital are more intimately related and mm. that the, basically that finance capital comes from outside which is, you know, I, I hate to say the other people who had that theory were fascist. But yeah, I was going to say, like, classically structurally anti-Semitic argument. Uh, one that's like, you know, I'm not calling him an anti-Semite, but it's also just a, a completely um, not just backwards understanding of the interrelation between finance and industrial capital. But uh, it's also one that's very, like, historically present. Right. It's very easy over the last 40 or 50 years to imagine international finance as some parasitic force that arises from like good, clean industrial production. Well, the last 50 years give give one a plausible case for that. If you look at the way that financialization has like rocked economies and rocked the world and there was the debt crisis in the 80s. Um, And certainly there's these big vulture capitalist firms which are which seem as though they're merely uh, parasitically acting upon the economy. But for reasons we've talked about, you know, on this series before, you know, the the implications there are uh, there's a mutual implication, of course, between finance and industry. One right. of these I mean, people, it's, it's not it's not convenient for the argument if you're making counter hegemony arguments because, you know, for obvious reasons. But. Well, I think this is something we actually kind of have to have to ask ourselves, like, why does this argument not hold? Even under classic Marxist-Leninism, it doesn't hold on there. Yeah. So for people to be like, oh, you're not a good Marxist-Leninist. No, this is a Marxist-Leninist argument, too. Finance capital is endemic all the way back to capital volume two to industrial capital because it, it mitigates over time the effects of the business cycle. Yes. And, and the production cycle as well. Right. Um, and which also means that, you know, there is a sense in which finance capital after the 1970s is parasitic on production. Um, the problem that you have, though, is the reason why someone like Hudson may say that is they don't believe that they're they don't believe at all that there is ever a real crisis of profitability. They're going to argue that it's either an external shock, mm-hmm. i.e. the oil crisis or. That it's just not real. Or it's an imperialist manipulation of themselves, though. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, so this is the question. So, like, so basically, you have to believe that the finance capitalists somehow fooled industrial capitalism into making mistakes, or in that seventies, the or their preponderant political power allowed them, like, to to take over the state, as it were, against right. industrial capital. But I'm just going to also point out. Um, while these people also tend to believe in Lenin's uh, imperialism theory, you can't believe in Lenin's actual justification for his imperialism theory if you believe this. Mm. Because if you believe this, there was never any need for intercapitalist competition to seek super profits in foreign markets outside mm-hmm. of itself. And the other thing that they will pretend that like this this leads to a uni a uni hegemonic view. Uh, development, but that's not implied in Lenin. Lenin thinks the world wars actually come from the fact that it's different imperial powers fighting. All right. So even if you're a Leninist, this doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Like people are just bracketing out what's inconvenient for them. But this, what does this have to do with MMT? MMT argues a lot of the same things. So, but with the MMTers, you have like, okay, well, China doesn't do it. We don't really know why they should. <laughs> um, uh, the, the Europe doesn't do it because they, they, 
they put this death nail in the in the EU constitution that limits the amount of acceptable inflation before the central bank has to kick in mm. and limits the currency sovereignty of parties within the European Union. Okay, why did they do that, though? This is the part that I've always find interesting and MMTers just don't ask themselves. And I'm like, why they did that was to forestall national bourgeois competition within the EU mm. through currency manipulation. That's why it had to be there. It wasn't just stupid. Mm. Like, um, it was I would have thought it would have to something to do too with uh, the power of Germany within the alliance within the coalition. Absolutely. Well. In fact, what? it's it's a way of France making sure Germany uh, doesn't dominate things in a right. way that um, the some of the smaller countries were able to push back on both France and Germany, mm. who are the two dominant powers in the EU, um, to get them on board. The exception was always made for the UK, and the UK was able to leverage. Um, the difference in the speculative value of the pound as a world reserve currency against the cost of living in other parts of Europe to to keep its labor market cheap mm. and to and to keep inflation down. The moment they did Brexit, it actually called the bluff on this entire setup and made mm. it very clear that was the only way the UK was able to remain profitable after the decline of its empire because it had already, during the end of its own imperial period, liquidated and began to liquidate most of its productive capacity. Right. And there's no way it could compete with super large states like even Germany but and, and France, but most definitely the United States, Europe as a whole, are... Um, China as a whole, or Japan, even at, you know, it couldn't compete with any of them. So they had so, like a 20, 25 year run as like uh, basically carry trade right. uh, between, between different currencies and existed in this beautiful middle spot that they could leverage both. And then in 2015, blew the whole thing up. Blew the whole thing up, which also, you know, just if people think we're too economistic, uh, no, people do occasionally make things work for the, worse for themselves for nothing to do with economics. Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> um, sure. I, I think it would have blown up eventually anyway. It was already beginning to become slightly untethered, which is why I think Brexit had any pull at all. And, um, and the reason why it happens in 2015 are all of the various different economic shocks that happen within the European Union. That right. their eurozone specifically, i.e., Greece, i.e., Italy, i.e., Spain, which caused this sort of um, populist fervor, or or at least spurred on a populist fervor uh, against these big institutions that had existed, but kind of really explodes in 2015. The contradictions within that within the eurozone became really really clear by that point, leading right. you know the popular classes within Britain to the extent that they actually vote to do this quote unquote crazy thing. Yeah, um, and and there is also a real sense in which EU neoliberal policy is a constraint on all states, including the UK, even though the UK was not in the Eurozone. Mm. Um, we saw the disaster that happened with Syriza and, and Greece. Um, One that continues as they just got kicked out of government, right? And the, yep. the right wing came in, right wing coalition. Yeah, completely right-wing coalition. I think that also we have to be completely honest and say we don't... At this point, things are bad enough in Greece. Um, Greece has basically been in a depression that's as bad as or bad or worse as the U.S. Great Depression for the last decade. Yeah. Um, that Social while, stability only won from massive emigration. Right. Um, so I think we have to completely scrap a whole lot of you know the left analysis there the question is that's often asked by people who follow me because i was i said that grexit grexit would have been a disaster mm. um i don't know anymore mm. um i still think they'd be i think it would have been uh, i think it would have been bad either way but the conditions imposed on greece by the eu have been so severe that I am actually like, it's about tit for tat, I think, how bad it would have been. Maybe it would have been worth it. I can't say. Um, the problem that Greece would have had, though, is it doesn't have a productive industrial sector yeah. to, 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 to make its currency viable. Now, it's okay, got so fishing, it's, it's got tourism, and it's got shipping. Right. So there's been a lot of MMTers who kind of like talk about the need, a spectrum of sovereignty and need for countries to do this and like develop. 
And then I point out, but the re- they do that in the way that Marxists describe that they would, which is print, which is accumulation from outside forces, building up of productive forces, which they're going to be have a hard time doing if no one will take their currency, mm. and they can't produce them internally, which small states can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, which means that the likely outcome of that is going to be an expansionist policy of the state to get more resources if it can't trade for them. And there you go. Um, so, so, so I, I, I bring this up to say that I don't know that MMPers are entirely wrong, but they don't seem to be able to explain basically most of the conditions of the modern economy, except for currency flows. And particularly they can talk about, the Anglo currencies having currency sovereignty, basically all because the U.S. extends it to them mm. and Japan. Mm. Um, Do MMTs have um, some existence? MMTers within the Biden administration are there MMTers like wonks floating around in the White House? Or? Uh, they made a. I think they made a push for that. Um, yeah. There are MMT or policy advisors to individual. Um, uh, Democratic Congress people. Okay. And uh, most of Bernie Sanders' economic advisors were actually MMTers. Interesting. Okay. I, I believe that kind of left Keynesians still dominate in the Biden administration, and left Keynesians are actually more inflation averse. Mm. Um, although no one's going to do what Keynes says to do when inflation's high. You know, what Keynes says to do is directly tax. Right. No one's going to do that. And so what this led to, for why Keynesianism seems to be unable to deal with this and why sometimes they seem like MMTers, like in the Obama period and right now they don't, like, you know, Paul Krugman, who used to be a print the coin guy, is now uh, hanging out with Larry Summers and talking mm. about the need for like 5 to 10% unemployment that no one can seem to engineer. Mm. Um, Another thing we'll talk about today. Yeah. <laughs> um, is... Uh, is that they started thinking, well, we can't do the tax policy of Keynes. It's too unpopular politically. So maybe we have to figure out how to use monetarist theory to do what Keynes wanted us to do, which leads to this weird synthesis Mm. of uh, like Chicago school monetarism and um, most center and, uh, right-wing Keynesianism and now including people like Kuhlman, what we call center left Keynesianism now over there too, differentiating mm. itself from MMT. Um, so, so with the inability for fiscal policy to, to affect like tax rates to suck up all this money going around, tax the rich, soak the rich instead it's like Keynesianism, but only with the monetary lever to pull. So let, yeah, let's talk Is that about what you're saying. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this for a second, but, yeah. uh, MNT also indicates that we should tax the rich to remove their power, but that we don't need to. That the only reason we need to do that is to to tamp in their influence, um, which I think is weird. Um, mm. uh, but okay, fine. They argue that 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 uh, we could get everything we needed going just like we did it in the '30s, which I think is a very weird understanding of what was actually going on in the New Deal. But that's mm. just me. Um. And once we got it going, then it'll be popular and then we can tax the rich later, but we shouldn't wait for that to try to get these policies done. Um, fair enough. Uh, the, 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 however, the problem that you're going to have with all this, Sean, mm. is taxing the rich won't actually slow inflation, mm. no matter what your theory of inflation is, because the rich can just not spend money. Mm. They can they can sit on it and let it appreciate uh, with speculative assets, um, even if the speculative assets have low, you know, uh, low growth. Um, so classic Keynesianism calls to tax everybody. Yep, consumers and as well, particularly consumers. Mm-hmm. Which is the, which is why it's so unpopular and why Keynesians don't admit that's what their doctrine calls for. Mm. The idea that Keynes says is you tax consumers when things are good and then you drop the taxes when things are bad, but you counter cyclical. Right. It's counter cyclical, which which it one politically it never comes up when things are good. 
In fact, what you see when things are good is a tendency to cut taxes mm. because Tax rebates and so forth. Like right. we got after 9-11 and after the great financial crisis right. and during COVID. Um, and then uh, the other tendency is going to be to um, taxing assets isn't going to really remove uh, money from the from the consumer end of inflation. And that's mm. what you really want. So that's just going to be unpopular because it's no, no matter. So, so the, the idea would be when things are good and inflation's normal, you increase the cost of goods um, by taxing them. And when things are bad, you decrease the cost of goods by relieving the taxes, thus stimulating spending and hope of returning the goods so that you tax them again. That's the, that's the, the, the Keynesian model. MMTers mm. just think, no, you only need to tax to occasionally slow inflation, although they don't think inflation's caused by um, the amount of money in the economy, which I'm just going to say, I agree with them because hoarding's mm. a thing. Um, mm, mm. uh, and two, they're going to say that, like, the only reason you need to, you really need to tax other than occasionally cooling down an overly hot market is to, is a backdoor way to, like, figure out where people are putting money. So you tax as a way to, like, encourage social policies through the backdoor. Mm. Um, so, like, if people want to do investments, you tax it this way. Now, all of these assume a couple of things that I think is problematic. And one is that people actually, like, that that people as individuals respond to currency flows directly like that. Mm. Uh, and so this brings me to what they're claiming right now, at least what Warren Mosler is claiming right now. Warren Mosler is claiming that, and this is why we have to deal with it when talking about the debt crisis. Yeah. Um, is that sovereign debt in the United States is going is, increases the currency market and trying to shrink it will hurt you. And that Jerome Powell is accidentally <laughs> creating a lack of unemployment because Congress won't do anything because the payouts on the interest. So one thing we don't talk about in interest is that interest pays out, mm. right? So if the Fed raises the interest rate on loans, it's got to pay out that interest rate to somebody, which are going to be, which are going to be bondholders, most of which are wealthy people within the United States and businesses within the United States. Right. And so he says, uh, for example, that that leads to, um, say, there's thirty trillion dollars in in uh, U.S. debt. That the increase in of interest rate leads to five point one point six trillion being backdoor injected into the economy, and this is why, um. Unemployment is state stable, despite the, the increase of the cost of debt. Hmm. My challenge to that is, why do you think that's, you think that's going to payrolls? Like you, you like that, that's one-to-one. I, I right. don't even know what percentage of that money staying in the U S I mean, it's a high percentage. The amount of bond holding that's held by foreign governments and whatnot's actually vastly overstated, but hmm. like, um, I don't think it's enough to be offsetting any of the debt costs for businesses because most businesses hold, this is why like um, the argument about like inflation, uh, why say uh, deflation is bad for businesses now. Like why do businesses not support deflation? Because if businesses held most of the private, uh, private debt deflation actually helps them, Mm -hmm. right? It makes money more valuable. So it means that, money borrowed in the past would actually be more valuable to recoup on than today. Mm -hmm. So why do most businesses fight like really hate deflationary policies? And you realize because most of them are, are actually bigger debt holders than the, than the general public, Mm. Uh, which, and we saw this really kick in the beginning of these inflation hikes in the tech sector. Mm. Like that's when we saw all this instability in the tech sector. Mm -hmm. So, my 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 big pushback to them is like, okay, you say there's this much debt and it's being directly injected into the economy, 
But in, wouldn't that just be circular? Because there's also all these businesses that have debt that are now having to pay higher interest rates. It yeah. just throws it right back in. It doesn't make sense to say that that's a clean injection right. into the economy. And yet that's pretty much what Warren Mosler argues. Huh. And that's his reason for why the unemployment rate keeps on getting revised down. So in May, the Bureau of Labor Statistics said that the unemployment numbers were getting worse. But if you actually looked at the revisions of the first quarter, they actually said, no, they're actually even better than last year. And GDP as well, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, the problem that I have with that, the GDP can be can be increased by all kinds of things. Sure. Uh, but we have an incredibly restrictive immigration regime right now. It's actually just as much or maybe even more restricted in the height of Trump's. Mm. Um it has not been relaxed for whatever reason by the by the by the Democrats. Uh, they haven't even called for it really outside of outside of the very beginning of the regime in which they all quietly let that go. Mm. Um, After and, all the histrionics about kids in cages, right? And then let's just ask ourselves a question: um, Do we think there are more or less boomers in the in the in the workforce? Mm. Well. Boomers are leaving. A lot of them are still alive. There's still a lot of wealth, a lot of private wealth tied up in booner asset holdings. Mm -hmm. But boomers are leaving the workforce in droves. Yep. And the only reason that millennials were ever even kind of on par with boomers in growth was purely immigration, which is why the racial demographics of the country changed. The mm. black percentage of the population, for example, has been fairly stable for 30 years. Mm. The increase has been mostly in Asian, for, uh, which is generally high-end immigration because of, uh, frankly, racist policies, and in Latin immigration. Um, that's where most of the growth of the population has been. So that's why millennials are so much more diverse. Like, mm -hmm. But that's over. Mm. For whatever reason, even Democrats aren't willing to risk that political calculation. And there may be economic reasons for it that I can't entirely see, although it would put pressure back on the labor market. And if they wanted unemployment, which Fareed Zakaria has more or less a backdoor said, mm. that would be the way to do it. Would right. be to um, have massive low-skill immigration. Um, increase not HB1 visas. Right. Increase HB1 visas, et cetera. And instead, what did we see? We saw that we saw a bunch of technologies that have been clustered developed, developed for a long time. And LLMs finally being pushed to the forefront to drastically reduce a whole lot of labor needs. Hmm. All right. Now, I don't think that happened like it wasn't planned, but there's a it seems to me there's a pretty clear reason why we saw chat GPT come out in the middle of this tech restructuring while well, all yeah. of a sudden they're putting a ton of resources into a that trillion dollars has poured into it over the last several months, a trillion dollars. Every though, player there in Silicon Valley is trying to get their hand in it, which is interesting though, because the returns on it are lower than expected. I think that they all, I mean, I, I think part of this is like a public relations thing. I think that, uh, yeah. And you see this, I was reading the, I've been reading the New York times a lot lately. And there's been four or five different articles that came out that basically read like PR from um, uh, like um, chat algorithm boosters, basically. And these aren't just ones talking about how, how great it is to invest in chat GBT. These are articles talking about how it's bringing life back to Silicon Valley, how it's bringing the parties back, about how a lot of developers and entrepreneurs who moved away from the Bay Area have all of a sudden moved back. So I think that the on top of everything else, this is a way to sop up a lot of the excess money that's still floating around, get it back into the tech sector where it had been fleeing from, uh, and also provide a boost to like the Bay Area in in particular uh, after it's like in, incredible decline in employment and uh, real estate values. Um, but I don't, I'm not sure that uh, they expect to or plan to see profits from this anytime soon. It feels like. We're in another situation like the mid-teens, uh, early to mid-teens when Uber and all these other apps and Airbnb were coming out. And it was kind of a free-for-all of figuring out how to monetize this stuff. And I'm not sure that they're concerned at this early day whether it's monetizable at all. Um, it appears to be operating in the same way that 
Uber did, where it's basically like a privatization of uh, public service, the anticipation of that, and like really seeking to do labor arbitrage on a on a on a huge level, whether the profits are there or not. Yeah. So this brings me to the the, the last problem with all this stuff with the MMTers is. They're not all guilty of this before people, I'm just a hashtag not all MMTers, but the guy who was just arguing this, which is the argument from Warren Mosler, mm. you also can only believe if you think that the U.S. is a closed economic system that is just a national system. And this mm. is why there's been an increased number of defectors from left MMT to right MMT. Now, MMTers itself will just say it's not that we don't have any policy descriptions uh, prescriptions mmt is just a descriptor of the economy mm. it's just about how the state is a source of all money except you know there's no way that's true but um but you know nonetheless it is a source of all currency and in the case of the united states a lot of the conditions that they're saying superficially are true no the u.s government cannot run out of money mm. like it can run out of wealth though mm. And those are not the same thing. And and that's where I start. And there are MMTers who will admit this to you. Okay. So I don't want to condemn them all. But when they threw these back of the hand calculations, like that guy who was regurgitating Warren Mosler to me to explain, well, well, really the the current uh uh Powell actually has everything backwards and he's saving the economy albeit in an aggressive way mm. by raising by raising interest rates because you got to pay out to all the to all these bondholders and by paying out to the bondholders you're injecting this into the economy and i'm you're just like yeah, but, that money down <laughs> but that assumes that there's more bonds holders even in business than there are debt holders and i don't think you can assume that mm. um the debt is larger than the amount of currency that's currently out there. And I don't mm -hmm. just mean like here. I'm not just talking about public debt. Okay. They might be right about public debt, but private debt is private involved debt. in this too. Yeah. Massive behind the scene movements, every single night of money bonds back and forth between giant financial and industrial corporations. And then when we throw in the entire capitalist system, looking at the global South in particular and why stuff like the Belt and Road Initiative hit a wall, like we mentioned earlier, then we have an entirely different picture about where the world economy is. And it's not something that you can just fix mm. by by um, individual things within the United States. Yes, the United States has the most power because it's still the financial hegemon, but it has less power by the year mm -hmm. um and and, and different gonna, power too right and, and and i i think i what i would push back on people when they're like well bricks or whatever i'm like there's not going to be another u.s style hegemon do you even want there to be like okay clearly that's why there's been this shift on talking about multipolarity instead of like counter hegemonic tendencies because yeah. it, because that's actually that's actually a raising down of stakes that were priorly made 10 years ago by people who were trying to stand. They said, oh, it's going to be the new hegemon. Mm -hmm. Now, China itself is saying there is no new hegemon. We're going yeah. to have a multipolarity. And the United States is going to be fairly well off. Yeah. Like. Yeah, that's why I said uh, just a second ago, it's not just uh, less power by the year, but it's also different power. Because being um, like the free marketeer, being the uh, the the financial hegemon over like. Uh, a, a large swath of, but not the entirety of the globe. Like we're seeing these blocks uh, arise with Russia, China, um, and large parts of Africa on one side. And then of course, Western Europe, the United States. And then really you've got India and South America up for grabs and Central America up for grabs at this point in time. South the America, world... I don't think Central America is up for grabs. Like Mexico is firmly in the U.S. camp, even if they're yeah. politically going to appeal to China. Their primary trade partner and primary economic relationship is with the United States. Yeah, I was Central thinking more like Nic Nicaragua and Guatemala. The, the... Yeah, yeah, but places that are so small, they don't matter. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry. Not I know that they matter. Already for people. Guatemalans out there. Yeah. Yeah. They matter for people and it matters for the people who live there. And it's totally logical for Guatemalans, for example, to appeal to like Russia or China because, you know, 
one of the the things, if you know um, geopolitical strategy from Britain that all this multipolarity talk is, is from, is there's an, an incentive for small nations in the sphere of a hegemon to appeal to the faraway hegemon mm. uh, for trade because it will it it makes the the local hegemon less likely to completely dominate them. Mm. Um, and more likely to get favors from the close hegemon when it seems like loyalty uh, might right. be in question. However, this very tendency actually inclines it more to war. So all proxy, this multipolarity does. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 proxy wars are 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 more common historically in these kinds of tendencies because for a while, yeah, the the local hegemon will like say, fine, you can get more concessions, sure. But eventually, a la Ukraine reaching out towards the West uh, to weaken the the pull of the, the Russians, eventually a regional power is going to be like, you know, you got to stop. Yeah, you're you're going to risk our ability to to have our own trade cycles. It's a very and, profound example that you bring up of that particular. Right. Because that's why the why do all the Baltic states appear in the United States? They're not culturally that related. I mean, they're less so than most Europeans. Why are they more willing? To, why is like Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia way more in the U.S. camp? Uh, yeah, sure, Russia's scary, but that's not why. I mean, we're scary too. Yeah. Like, <laughs> damn straight like, we are. <laughs> um, why is that? Well, because Russia's right fucking there. And yeah. and people who don't understand this, like this is like when they're trying to read this through and there's a lot of people right now on the left who are trying to reread this through the Cold War as if China and the US are completely ideologically opposed yeah. and aren't and also aren't integrated with each other in a very real way. That yes is being slowly undone, but for both sides, that's gonna take at least a decade. At oh, least. at least, at least. It yeah. may be like the first part of this century if there isn't war. The right? the Biden administration in the last six months or so, I guess since the, the histrionics around the uh, spy balloon, which as it turns out, wasn't actually collecting any data over the United States. But since that, it seems like the Biden administration has pulled back a bit on the rhetoric um, it, against it, China because they saw, I think, and it seemed like madness over the last year or so, uh, the heated rhetoric that you saw from the punditry and the press about like a hard uh, making a hard division between the American and Chinese economy and what seemed like madness to all of us lay observers on the outside. I think eventually um, people within like actual policymakers, the actual blob within the Biden administration had also figured out, too, that they couldn't let this rhetoric get out of control. If you just see the amount of goods and services and money that go back and forth between the United States and China, it's very clear why. You can't have yeah. a hard break. And if you did have a hard break, it would have to be through, it would be a, a war situation. It would have to be a global war. war. Yeah. yeah. That's the um, only way. And we've seen, you know, with, with Russia and Ukraine, you could have said similar. You could have used the, the uh, McDonald's and, thesis a few years ago and said that they're too integrated. The United States and Russia have too many actual interests with one another in order to risk a proxy war or a geopolitical battle in Eastern Europe. But we saw how quickly this became reality. And also how quickly, too, because we've been on this, we, you and I have been talking for a couple of years at this point in time, how quickly, um, surprisingly, uh, Europe accommodated itself, Western Europe accommodated itself to the massive economic changes and how quickly Russia did as well. You know, uh, you have the new pipeline, the natural gas pipeline that's going to China now that's being built uh, as we speak. And you also have a huge winner in all of this, which we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, which is uh, Modi's India which is managed, I think, very, very astutely um, to play off the great powers against one another. You saw Modi come to uh, Washington last week and be feted not just by Biden and all of uh, the administration and both both sides of the aisle on that, but also meeting with uh, major American capitalists and saying that India is open for business. In what sense are they open for business? In the sense that despite the oil caps that have been put on um, Russian oil, uh, India seems to have been the greatest beneficiary of cheap Russian oil, uh, which is now flowing into uh, India and being processed in India. 
right uh in a in a way that we've never seen before See, this is one of the things with the whole bricks delusions on the uh, uh one bricks is not a formal thing yes there are people who petition to like get into their trading co-ops but it, it was an attempt at a thing in 2006 as like an alter globalization or within mm-hmm. that larger movement but it's never been the formal coalition that people want right to. um and to, a bunch of the reasons why are pretty clear one India and China are not going to share a currency. No. That's not going to happen. They don't even um, want to share a border, let alone a currency. Right. Um, <laughs> two, India cooperates with U- with U.S. and Australia against Chinese interest and the South China Sea. Three, India has good relations with Russia. Those relations are historically strong, as strong as Russia's relations to China. Actually, they're better than Russia's relationship to yeah. China because there's no Sino-Soviet split yep. in, a, in a border war. Uh, to like, ta- you know, um, and that China during during the Mao phase had border wars with both. So yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's something to to really consider about why India seems to be so stable. And this has stabilized Modi's government, which is extremely right wing, but it's been able to do it. Mm-hmm. And and now India is going to be like, look. We can finally get out of this weird development that we've had where we have this hyper-technical, you know, urban core and then basically no industrial development in the countryside whatsoever, which has led to something that's happened in the global south that a lot of these people aren't talking about. Also, when we talk about like you hear people, oh, there's so many more workers in the global south. The pool of workers in the global south have been decreasing. As is the number of subsistence farmers, mm-hmm. leading to just tons of lumping in the cities. Yeah, that's a Line fact. Slums. Yeah, yeah, that you know, and that's been going on now for two whole decades. And it's not, I mean, it's like there are left there are left anal- analysts who talk about it, but for the vast majority of people who want to pick up like 1980s versions of 1960s arguments <laughs> um, about about the developing world it's like the idea that the developing world is where most of production is only makes sense. If you still consider China part of the developing world, which I do not think you can do. Uh, Um, uh, What's the term for pericore or semicore? Yes. uh, Yeah. It used to be, it used to be semi periphery. And I think, I think now we should just refer to China as like, semi-core and maybe we should also admit there are at least two cores now maybe three Mm. and they're not together like this this is we have but what makes this more interesting is they're not non-capitalist which is why i think this is why we're seeing right now so many leftists go like oh well we just social you have a purity fetish about socialism because the reason why we're seeing that is because like you want to hold on to something. You want to read this in lens of the Cold War, but you, but the, there was no fucking way that even under Gorby that the IMF was going to be meeting in Moscow. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, come on. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I think that's that's a really good point you make. An analogy between Cold War thinking, or you could say campus thinking, right, from like the mid to late twentieth century. Uh, and what people are trying to impose upon the world nowadays, oppose a strict division uh, of powers that's A, ideological, and B, is like strict, you know? Yeah. Whereas well, we see where the economic flows are and the, and the supply chains are, it's, there's, there's, no, there, there's, there's a lot of overlap there. But I think that on the left, though, this, this vacuum of understanding and this vacuum of practice has led people to want to impose that structure onto the world that that structure might arise but it's going to it seems it's going to arise as two main slightly porous capitalist poles right it's not going to arise ideologically if you think it's going to arise ideologically then you have to presume that there's some sort of um uh russian chinese indian uh south american um political or ideological um basis for unification and and i think that that's absurd yeah, Lula is not enough for that, my friends. Um, what I would say that makes it even more absurd when we think about this in these terms, um, and even, you know, in the 1920s to the 1950s, 
the the capitalist order actually you know allowed for Fordism and, and social democracy to develop. Now there are people who will claim that you know people in the Soviet Union were ten times happier than the West and a few times happier than the social. I'm like I don't know how you you just made that up. Yeah. Um, but the, the the immiseration of the Soviet Union is vastly overstated. That's absolutely mm-hmm. true. But like the idea that they did massively better than everybody else here is also kind of nutty yeah um, i got in let, trouble for that a couple of weeks ago when i said that the uh the so the planned economy of the soviet union just didn't work i got i had to mute that one because people were really really upset but these were the debates that were happening within marxism and communism not just in the west but in the soviet sphere in the 1960s and 1970s and 80s why doesn't this thing work why do you think gorbachev came along it wasn't a coup by the cia it wasn't capitalist rotors per se it was the fact that you had like a deeply deformed. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that people system. love Dung and hate Gorby when when uh, they they basically did the same thing. And the Soviet Union was just was just further along in its industrial development path, so it, it had less gains to be made. Um, whereas China, uh, for a variety of reasons didn't um it led to an increase in education and stuff later but a lot later and at a high cost and i you know i've mentioned this to you before but if you read the work of chinese scholars so don't come at me saying i'm using western scholars for this uh uh dumping han and mobile gao they point out that like education rapidly declined during Mm. the dung period for for rural people that uh, healthcare declined massively because even the kind of anemic um, barefoot doctor system was ended. This is actually pointed out by Amartya Sen too. Mm. Like, these are not people who are part of the like Western Marxist establishment, um, you know. And that fact, they actually are both Xi Jinping fans, but they do not like Deng. Um And I mean, we can, we can look at the kind of political brilliance of Xi Jinping for a long time. Um, uh, in the sense that um, he's been able to get a kind of neo-malice current that was emerging out of the frustrations of, of rural development um, in the late aughts mm. and aught teens, which led to a massive strike wave and like people killing themselves off Fox kind of stuff, which still gets brought up, but is now forgotten about. Mm. Um, he was able to, to do moderate reinvestment, like at least provide, um, socialized insurance for the poor uh, which didn't exist i mean uh you know these kinds of things which you would expect even poorish latin american countries often have were actually established in the last five to six years Mm -hmm. um now it's led to another problem though and something that I, i i'm guessing that the uh like many stats that are brought out by this by the prc itself that a lot of these people who are their friends in the West are just going to deny it's true. But for example, right now there is, there seems to be a real problem in the economy, despite the fact in the, in the Chinese economy that, that zero COVID really hit their economy, but they were already seeing declines in pro and GDP um, before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. Um. Zero COVID saw a massive decline. You saw a massive uptick when everything opened back up. And then it's deflated very, and very it's quickly. It's deflated incredibly quickly, which is why, like, the Belt and Road Initiative and stuff is still on the back burner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even in a country that has a super aging population, a lot of which is about to die, frankly, just because their age, I mean, even just on the natural course of events, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a baby boom in China too. Um, and yes, there are hawkish people like Peter Zion who think this is going to cause China to just fall apart. And I think that's absurd. That'd be yeah. like arguing that like since our baby boom is gone, America is going to break up into five countries. That's or that the or that the Wagner uh, the Wagner militia like heading towards Moscow for twelve hours is going to be the death knell of Putin's Russia. Yeah, that's just dumb. Yeah. But that's absurd. But there is a real problem on the horizon, and yet they have a. An, an extremely high they have a higher than europe normally has high youth unemployment rate i yeah. mean youth unemployment rate in europe is also 
ridiculously higher than the United States. But like, I read a report from within uh, China. I had to translate it from uh, from uh, Mandarin into English to read it. But estimates are by uh, tw- uh, 2025, uh, 20 million or 20 percent uh, youth unemployment, 50 million. Um, uh, young workers in China unemployed if things continue this way because the state sector doesn't even state uh, owned enterprises uh, don't have enough juice to um, pick up and hire so many especially of like uh, white collar Chinese uh, youth coming out of universities uh, the job growth isn't there at this point in time and the um, the economy has slowed down from what was it twelve uh, percent down to i think now they're estimating like four or five percent and there just isn't like the private capital accumulation or uh the measures of of state investment sufficient to uh you know integrate 50 million chinese youth which is an incredible statistic so uh the the growth rate in china has been under 10 percent except right after covid for about a decade Mm -hmm. now the last great Chinese freak out towards the beginning of the pivot towards China was like, oh, if the Chinese growth rate ever falls before 10%, the country will fall apart. Right. <laughs> which, yeah. which has not happened at all. You know, the underlying and, presumption always, too, that it's going to become a liberal democracy at right. that point in time. <laughs> yeah, which is also absurd. <laughs> but because um, I'm like, yeah, something was re- in under current conditions, if something wants to replace the CPC, it would probably be right-wing nationalists sort yeah of, yeah like um, neo neo maoist fascism or something yeah. I, I would probably just be like super han nationalism uh mm. um and it might take a maoist uh guys but that's the problem with like when we talk about neo maoism is there's a faction of it that's super, super like wants Mao back. And there's also mm-hmm. a faction of it that's just super, super nationalistic. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it's Han nationalistic. Some of it's like greater China nationalism. And for people who don't know, those are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, great, like greater China nationalism is like the Sun Yat-sen, all the peoples together in one like civic nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, Han nationalism is Han supremacy. Like, mm-hmm. Um, and they shouldn't surprise us that both exist because both exist here, right? Like we should expect that that these kinds of mo- like the United States is not truly speaking a nation state in so much that it's ever been a nation state. It has tried to be a nation state by synthetically building a nation, either by supporting the immigration of white people or by trying to blend all the peoples together into one corporate identity. Mm-hmm. And like even Western chauvinism goes back and forth as to whether or not it's Western, but open to anybody like racially are purely white supremacists, even yeah. on the right. Like there's yeah. this big fluctuating pendulum there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would suspect that the, the PRC um, does not have that as bad. But one of the interesting things about Falun Gong as part of Falun Gong's ideology is they're Han supremacists. Mm. Um, Which is part of the reason they're seen as a threat by the mm-hmm. CPC? Yeah, it is. Um, uh, but there are peoples, you know, there are peoples in the, in, in, the, in the PRC, such as like the Uyghurs and Tibetans, who are harder to incorporate in uh, because they have uh, separatist histories, etc. Um, and I think there's all kinds of problems in there. I've talked about, like, I don't like the way that Marxist Leninists pretend like nothing bad is happening to Uyghurs or Tibetans. Yeah. Which I think is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but I also think, well, the, the the definition of genocide as defined by the UN after World War II actually includes almost all nation building actions as genocide. Yeah, uh, I I think the the way that we've kind of squared this before uh, in talking about it, maybe we talked about this on the on the China episode a couple times mm-hmm. ago was um was that you, you, it's tough to to make a double standard for the sort of nation building that China is doing right now when these are things that happened 50 or 100 or 150 years ago in the West, but that doesn't of course excuse the actual actions being taken right now these these integrative attempts on the part of the uh, the Chinese state to bring these people into the body of the nation. Right. But it's like Israel, you know, Israel, what it's doing, it's settler colonial project. Um, 
in uh, the Levant right now looks a lot like something you'd see 100, 150 years ago or so. And it looks especially bad because this process has been completed already in the United States, in South America, in South Africa, and uh, in Australia. So it just it looks bad in uh, the, the current uh, year. Yeah, it's been completed in Latin America, too. We have to remember that Lat- all the Latin American states are settler colonial as well. Yeah. Um, right. So... Yeah. Uh, maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe I, I, the two exceptions maybe Bolivia and Uruguay because they have multinational confessions. But even most people don't know what that means, and if it actually leads to indigenous, like how much say it actually is indigenous people having in the government's really unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, all that aside, um, yeah. uh, so we have we have in this context, no one's here the be- to, to like continue really supporting um the developing world india has been able to really benefit um china has already done its major industrialization pools now really kind of yeah we'll call it semi-core as opposed to semi-periphery uh it's definitely closer to the core but to me it's as core as europe man like yeah no like europe in a sense is decoring itself right <laughs> look, at, look at germany right now i mean who's the big if india is the big winner in terms of energy markets and their ability to produce things cheaply which i think we're going to see a, an industrializing germany yeah. germany is the big, the big loser the big loser we've seen and it's germany... a loser geopolitically as well too as there's been more and more pressure especially among the left in germany to like cut out not just um russian energy but also of course chinese uh, you know, Chinese markets as well. Right. Which, which means that they have to accept, um, more U.S. hegemony. Whereas at least Macron, uh, even though, you know, it seems like France is on fire constantly. (laughs) Um, I'm um, watching, I'm watching the fucking, the the people online as though this is the first time that, that France has erupted in this and that it's all, it's all an immigration problem. This is what they get for letting the third world in your country. Motherfucker. Do you know anything about the history of France? Not just the last, what, 200 years, but even like the last fucking like 10, 20 years, man, this is, this is pretty commonplace in France. It's, say, it's, it's yeah. not to say it's not an escalation, because certainly these riots are, uh, I think, probably on par with some of the biggest we've seen in decades. But it's only to say, like, this is an old, great French tradition. This is, this means assimilation might have worked in that sense. My other thing is when people in America go, like, well, we're not like the French. They're out in the streets all the time. And I'm like, did, did 2020 not happen? And and I'm just going to point out to you, it's working about as well for them as it did for us in the Floyd case, which means yeah. not very well. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, this, this some. Always, yeah, I'll ahead. be I'll be surprised if like the political logjam in um in France or the Macron government is affected in this in any major way. Besides, probably like uh, Marine Le Pen having a little better chance next time the elections come along. Yeah, I hate to make Michelle Welbrecht ever seem right, although it has nothing to do with immigration. But like, I feel like, well, this neoliberal Macron government does seem to mean that, like, no matter what happens, Le Pen is eventually going to be in power. Yeah, like, like we'll see if I, that's any worse than uh, Maloney being in yeah. power in Italy, which has been bad, but it hasn't been the the absolute disaster people were. No, she hasn't even been Orban yet. Like. Yeah. Our Eldragon also, which have red limits. So, so this leads us to, um, to a whole lot of issues. But if we need to talk about, finally, we can talk about debt. But this is the context and kind of getting rid of all these narratives that that, that the global sovereign debts don't matter at all because that's common on the left. It used to be that we needed to restructure them, and now it's just like they just don't matter. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, uh, and to be fair, again, smarter MMTers don't argue this, but their fans do. So we have to like uh, deal with this a little bit. Um, so should we move things- to the should we move to the bonus then for uh, Antifada listeners? We're at yeah. about an hour or so. So yeah. if you're interested in more of this conversation and knowing uh, Varn and I, we're going to go off for a bit more. Uh, you can become a patron of Varn Vlog. And you can watch this video of us 
human beings moving around on a screen and gesticulating while we have the rest of this conversation. Uh, or you can become a patron at uh, the Antifada, patreon.com slash the Antifada and hear the rest of this uh, for patrons. So if you are, we'll see you on the other side. If not, consider it. All right. Now we do the, the awful thing and actually talk about the topic. Of the <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, hope, I, hope, I hope that was like a nice long hour long teaser. It was. To talk um, about that. You, you, can't, you can't talk about it in one hour. How bad, how bad did we do? I mean, we-